Welcome to Word Birds, where you'll hear content conversations directly from the flock. Join Christopher Willis in conversation with content experts and thought leaders as they chat about how to make the most out of your words in business. Here's your host, Chris. Hello, and welcome to Word Birds, a birds of a feather conversation amongst people that care about words today. On the show, we have Misha Vaughn. Misha is a content director from companies such as Twitter, Upworthy, Webflow, and others. We're going to be talking about identifying and building the voice of a company, creation, and how creation really is only the beginning because you've got to get that content out to your end users. Let's sit back and get some insight from the flock. Hello, Misha. Welcome to WordBirds. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Good. Not too bad at all. I think today is going to be a really interesting conversation. Looking at your background and what you do in the content space as a director of content, first thing that I notice is that you've taken the time to really think through building the voice of a company. And I think that's something that gets lost in a lot of businesses is that we want to sound like something and specifically something that attracts an audience How do you think about the creation of the corporate voice, the brand voice, and any examples of companies that are really doing it right out there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think of a company's voice in a couple of ways. Like one, the reason why I'm interested in it is because there's so much that I studied creative writing in college, and there's so much that is written about how individuals find their own voice, how you can work on your own voice, how you can work on your own tone. And there's so much to help individuals in their own writing. But there isn't a lot that's written or even discussed around how a group of individuals like a company might find their voice together. The way that I think about it, there's two key components to find a company's voice. One is the messaging, which requires everything from your product differentiation, your core audiences, why it matters to people. And that has to be done usually in heavy partnership with leadership, with product marketing, like very tight coordination of them. And then there's your voice and tone. And your voice and tone or your tone of voice are two very specific things. Your voice of your company shouldn't ever really change. Your voice of your company should be, this is what we stand for. This is what we believe in. But your tone does change. Your tone changes based on the formats that you are working in. It could be a blog post. It could be email. It could be social. All those channels have different tones. You might be a little bit more informal on social versus a sales deck, for instance. And it's important to note that and note how your voice translates across those channels. And this is something that we did pretty recently when we redid our tone of voice at Webflow. And this is actually my first time redoing a company's tone of voice, which is pretty interesting. I've definitely built it from scratch before at other places that I've been. But this is the first time really seeing what was there. And it was interesting to see because there was a lot that was there that wasn't helping writers or helping people at the company who do a better job. There's a lot in there about their North Star this thing of like why they exist, there was a persona and stuff. And all of that sounds helpful. But when you have it together, you can have too much information. So a tone of voice to me is very clear of just here's how we say things. And even sometimes specifically here are things that we don't say. Sometimes you even go or here's how we refer to products. Here's how you talk about your competitors and stuff. And then the tone varies based on channel. If you're producing something that's more education focused versus something that's more targeted at sales or targeted at social or even an ad, if you will. So that was kind of fascinating to take this really granular approach. And we worked with a really wonderful consultant. Her name is Anna Picard. She is the person who wrote Slack's tone of voice. And I think to this day, the fact that Slack still has such a consistent tone of voice is something that's so impressive. In fact, I think I remember it was about this summer. It was, I think, around June or July of of 2020. 
Slack actually went down for about four or five hours, a significant amount of time. Webflow is a very Slack heavy culture and it completely disrupted our day, disrupted the day remember. Many, many companies. When they came out after the fact and on social media, we're like, hey, they had such an honest and authentic explanation of like what happened, how they failed and what they're doing to do it. And it was like, hey, this happens like sometimes it wasn't like dismissing under the rug, but it wasn't honestly like this does happen on occasion and it's not acceptable. It's something that we are working on, but they did it in such a way it was like they were also thanking people for sticking with them and really putting that customer centered approach so focused in their message. And that's something that Anna built in her time there. And the fact that that continues even to this day after Anna has been gone from Slack, I think for actually a couple of years now, the fact that that tone is still there, that shows me that that's a company that actually does it so well that it's persisted and it's been so strong even after the person who birthed those guidelines is gone. How do you manage that in the business? Like you identify who you want to be and how you want to feel to your audience. A, how do you operationalize that? How do you take, I want to be witty and wise, but not arrogant and turn that into operational content creation? And then how do you make that run across a company? Yeah. So one of the copywriters at Webflow, Kate Marshall, who worked on this and and actually helped lead this voice and tone refresh that we did, she and I conceived of a bunch of tactics and she came up with some directly herself and I'll walk you through them. So for this tone of voice refresh, we did a presentation at the company high level. Hey, here's what needs to happen. And then also Kate gathered all the writers from Webflow. And this could be not necessarily everybody, but some of the leaders on the support team, some of the leaders on the sales enablement side, leaders on the product marketing side and gather them and first off, took in their feedback of like, hey, what's working with the tone of voice now? And what are the things that where it's failing? So gathered their feedback before we redid it. And then once we did it, we said, hey, here's this new guideline. And here's how we use it. And here's some examples, like literally even having in this presentation, here's a phrase, how do we make it more in Webflow's voice? And how do we do that? So there's actually it was an interactive component. And that's recorded and it went into the learning management system and is a thing when employees onboard now, it is one of the fundamental things that they intake. So they understand, regardless of if they're writing, if they're a lawyer, if they understand, hey, if they're writing something that's coming from the company, they now understand how to do that. And then there also are other things that we did that are a little bit more deliberate. We had these open office hours where people could come and bring something that they were writing and say, hey, is this on brand? What are some ways to fix this? So some actionable ways to fix that in real time, which then they take those learnings and know that for the next time. And then the plan is that is still being implemented is actually to implement a writing workshop at a company. I think I've done a ton of writing workshops in my day, but I think it's something that companies can actually do. And I've heard of companies like a friend of mine who's one of the co-founders at Monzo Bank, which is based in the UK. They have this actually really strong writing culture and they have a whole writing workshop where I think for a whole day, the whole company does writing. And sometimes those turn into blog posts. Sometimes they turn into different things. You can go that far. What we were thinking for Webflow was just a small cohort of eight to 10 people and they would come on, they would step week one might be learning the tone of voice. Second thing might be like, okay, here's how we do social tactics. Here's how we do email. So just really giving them the full gamut of here's how we apply this tone of voice across these different channels, just so they're aware of how to operationalize it and take that back with them and kind of run maybe quarterly workshops like that, where you do have a small group of people who are invested and learning together and learning from each other, and then have that culture spread throughout the company. Yeah. I mean, that's from a manual process standpoint, that's really optimizing across that group in a way that would work and would allow people to maintain that voice. I'm really lucky because when I got here, I just had my fifth year anniversary at this business. I would have never expected that that would happen. The founder and I sat down and said, okay, it's time to refresh the tone of voice. And we sat down and did an exercise and identified who we want to be from a personality standpoint. It should be no surprise to anybody that's ever worked with a CMO and a CEO 
that it turned out to be a combination of the two of our personalities. We want the company to sound like us because, well, of course we do. And Mm -hmm. that's great, but the operationalization aspect of it. So what do you do with a description of a person? And we put tactics to it. If we want to be sound personal and not stodgy and modern, but not trendy, what does that mean? Well, it means no buzzwords. It means use contractions where possible instead of writing out both words. There's a number of things that we can do. And the neat thing about where I work is that we have this software that takes all that and then governs it across the whole business. And fun story. So I put this all into our software and I get the whole mm-hmm. front office using it. So sales, marketing, our BDR team, customer success, using this new clarity level, tone of voice that we've built in, the terminology that we have that we want to very specifically use. And it worked. It's great. People appreciate it. They engage with our content. Cool. Excellent. I, in true CMO form, am a megalomaniac. And who else can I control? I want to govern everybody. Who writes content here? Support team writes content. You know who doesn't think that my tone of voice is cute? Our support customers. I have a question, a quick question. I just need somebody to answer it. And we're writing back. Yeah, yeah quippy little comments. And that's where you you learn about your audiences. And I think one of the things that you talked about in notes was that audience identification and understanding who you're communicating with and what's going to resonate with them. I mean, so how do you take that tone of voice and that entire governance model that you've created and then adopt it to your audiences? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that you do by having a spectrum content and the voice that with you apply is a spectrum. You're not going to be fully corporate or fully casual, probably like pretty rarely. But we actually did set up this system where we have this corporate on one side, casual on one side. And if casual is a, a zero and corporate's a 10, we say, hey, for this particular piece, where should the range be? Is it a seven that leans more corporate or is it like a two and leans more casual? And maybe it's something that you can define for your support team. Say, hey, okay, support needs to be pretty in the middle, needs to be pretty keel, can't be too casual, has to be a little bit more on the side versus if you're doing something that's more sales, yes, you have something that's more corporate. At the same time, you mentioned, hey, no buzzwords. But the truth is for some people, especially if you're working with a technical product or you're explaining something, sometimes those buzzwords actually serve a purpose. And you do need something there because if you're always trying to say something in the simplest terms, you would describe a computer as like this box with screens. It's like you do need these terms and stuff to help explain. And and sometimes your audience, if the buzzwords are something that is clear for that audience, I think it's totally fair to use. What you don't want to use words like synergy and things like that unnecessarily that just might add unnecessary confusion on behalf of that. And so I think that's kind of what you do. You have to figure out within your tone of voice, where are your spectrums? And another one that Webflow has is humor. Webflow's educational materials are very humorous, but you won't see Webflow just inserting random jokes into things all the time. It's more just, okay, the humor needs to be applied when possible and stuff too. And honestly too, like the humor, it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. It works for a lot of people, but there are some people who might find it interruptive to their style learning. It's just that there's something that that team has decided this is something that works for us. And humor is something too, where it's like, it can very easily be done poorly at companies. I've seen things where companies are doing something and they think it's clever and it comes off just mean. So you need to have this really careful brush when you're applying these principles. And that's why I think it's helpful to have a spectrum. You say, okay, we're going to dial this up to a five on the humor scale, whereas actually for this announcement, we're going to keep it a two, keep it a little bit more serious, but maybe have a little cute sign off at the end. Write like you mean it with Acrolinks.
it's knowing how your audience wants to hear from you and how they want to consume your content. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. you don't know that, you're off target. You can't yep. be on target if you don't know that there's a target or a difference between targets, I guess. And that leads to, I guess, success measurement. So you're doing all this, you've identified the tone of voice and you've built content that's specific to your audiences. How do you know it works? How are you gauging the success of your content? Yeah. So I think there's two ways to gauge success, especially when you're working with creative work. You can have your success metrics where here's the impact that it made. So for a piece of content, it could be the traffic that it garnered, the number of subscribers you got, the number of signups, the number of leads generated. There's all like those classic measurements that we're all know about. You can even look at retention, the number of pages that they actually visited from it, whether it's ranking and search. There's a lot of metrics you can do. It just depends on kind of the intention that you have. At the same time, for the voice perspective, I think it's really helpful, especially for pieces that require a significant amount of investment to have creative goals. And those goals could be like, hey, this is the message we want to create. This is the feeling we want people to have. And these are even maybe the types of people we want to share it. And from that, you have to do a little bit more investigation where you maybe after the fact, whether it's a month, a couple months after the fact, you, you try and maybe you collect stories from salespeople like, hey, did anyone use this at all in talking to a client, a potential customer? At the same time, you have to think purely from the creative execution point, bringing that team together, like, hey, did this of our goals and the themes we were trying to impart, the messages we were trying to impart, the feeling, did we feel we achieved our goal? And you bring the stakeholders together and you have to have an honest conversation there. Maybe you say, oh, we tried something and honestly, like these jokes didn't land or something. You also can search on social media, whether it's Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and see like, hey, what was the reaction to it? Were people playing along with us if that's what we wanted to do? Or were they playing along with us when we didn't want them to do that? That's important to get that kind of calibration. And that pretty much only happens in retrospective. You just have to be diligent about doing it. You can set up a template for doing it. And once you have that information, you can course correct your tone of voice. Tones of voice are not static documents. They're things that can be living and breathing. It's good to probably refresh them on a more biannual basis, I'd say at the least. And these types of retrospectives can really help inform that. Absolutely. So we've spent a lot of time here talking about the creation of content. We've looked at mm -hmm. building a tone of voice. We've looked at identifying your targets, measuring the success of that creation. Is that all we care about? I feel like the answer is no. No, not at all. It's something I encounter a lot with content teams. So creating content is a lot of work. It's about 80% of the work. But just like the Pareto principle, there's 20% of the work that probably creates 80% of the impact. And that is distribution. I think of distribution very holistically. It comes from my time working at Media. I worked at this company called Upworthy back in the day. They ruined Facebook for a lot of people between 2012 and 14. I'm sorry for that. But Facebook's ruined for everybody now. So, you know, it's okay. But we did a lot of focus on after we wrote the piece doing, we actually did a lot of work on headlines. We had to write 25 headlines for every single piece that we did. And the reason we did it is because some people write the headline first and that's it. Don't think about it. The headline matters so much. Even the image you pick to get people to click into it matters so much. And we had the system for testing and optimizing that. And it was kind of funny to learn what number range you were for the headline that usually won. I was typically like an eight to 13 was my sweet spot. And so now I don't write 25 headlines, but I do write about 10 or so. And I have some methods for sometimes you do one with a number, sometimes you do one for a specific type of person, one that's very simple, one that uses a random word that you want to highlight. That's just even the headline part of distribution. But if you think of all the work you do, and you could write the best piece in the world, you could write the best blog post on starting a podcast. But if you don't do any work to get it in front of people, no one's going to see it. And it's going to have no chance of impact. You're not going to be able to glean, hey, was it successful or not, whether it's from a creative angle or an impact angle. 
So every content organization needs to have a really clear checklist. And it's usually based on content type. It's also based on audience type of where it goes. What do you do with it? How do you get it in front of people? And that's everything from how it's optimized for search, because you shouldn't be writing stuff just for search, especially with Google's recent updates. You should be treating search as a distribution tactic. What email list are you putting it on? Are you sending it to? What forums can it go on? Are you sharing on social media? How often? And how are you also like reconstructing that argument too? You're not just like putting a link out there, but you maybe you put it into a thread on Twitter or something, distill it into quotes on Instagram. There's a lot of ways to reuse content and get that idea out there. And especially for more brand or thought leading content, the important thing is the idea and getting that out there versus getting people to a specific link. Yes, you do want to do that for more performance-driven stuff and for more growth-driven content, but you need to think of how are you distributing this idea? How are you getting in front of the most people? And what's the right way to do that? And every business, every industry, they're going to have the right channels for it. Some places, Reddit might be an important thing. If you have a specific Reddit community, for other places, it may be Facebook groups that are out there. You need to really hone your distribution list as much. And even if possible, have people who are focused on that audience development. And that audience development is a whole separate conversation. But that's not just about distributing the content. That's actually about engaging with the audience where they are and making it so they want to stay following your brand and that they're getting value from you. And you're not just trying to always get them to do something. That starts to change the way that you think about your success metrics, because success metrics Mm -hmm. of creation, we've talked about success metrics of the content process in your business start to look like retention, product Mm -hmm. usage, sales. That's what the purpose of content is. And I think that's a thing that gets lost in the business is you think in terms of content marketing. That's some content in a business, but there's content everywhere. There's product content, there's technical documentation, there's product manuals, there's educational content, there's service and support content, there's obviously marketing, there's sales, there's all of this content floating around, none of it matters a bit if it's sitting on somebody's desk. It all Mm. needs to reach its intended audience. And so reaching out and talking to companies, enterprise size, size of companies that we sell to, we tried to pitch this idea of cost savings. We can help you save money in your content creation. And the most interesting thing happened. These huge businesses said, great, cool. Point to the line item on my budget where I'm spending money on content. It's people. It's your headcount. Everybody mm-hmm. comes to work. A byproduct of what we do during the course of our day is the creation of content. Everybody's involved in this. And we can help a business understand that aspect of it and get to a model where we can show that a piece of enterprise content that is created and goes through an editorial process and goes through sign-off process to a stakeholder through legal and out probably costs about $1,000 a page. But that's just the beginning because you haven't done anything with it everything that you create has to get somewhere. So there's either a push or a pull. Either I'm syndicating something or putting Mm -hmm. it out through ads or pushing it out somewhere, or I'm pulling it. So I'm SEO optimizing it so it can be found or I'm putting it on social. And all of those things cost far more than the creation of content. It puts way more stake in the game. So if you build out from there, the business starts to understand what they're actually spending. It's hard to help somebody to understand the cost of headcount that isn't intended to create content. It's easier when you say, show me your content syndication budget. Show me your Google ads mm-hmm, budget. Mm-hmm. Show me what you're paying SEO agencies. That's the value of content in your business because you're creating this for a reason. And I think that as people start to understand that, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation and puts more of an onus on people like you 
to build out the right content, to drive the right behaviors and the right engagement to get to those business results that we weren't connecting the dots with. Yeah. The other thing that's part of it too is it's creating content isn't the only way to grow those channels and stuff too, especially in all kinds of things. And yes, it is for sure in the way of search, but even search, you need to have a proper interlinking strategy and stuff too. And even on social, there's ways to engage with you. Yes, social is all content creation, but there's ways to engage with your audience. There are ways to grow that you need to do first and foremost, because if you're just treating social as a distribution channel, like people are just going to start to tune it out and you're not going to grow at the same way. You have to be more engaging and it's different per platform. I'm not saying like go out and start a TikTok, only do that if it's authentic to your brand and stuff. But you need to know where your audiences are and what is the right level to engage with them. What are the kind of things that they care about that are even outside your product and making sure that maybe there are some conversations that you should jump in there. And that has to, you need to empower your teams to do that. And that is what audience development, that's what typically happens at media companies. I don't see happening at companies, but it's such a great tactic. And it is starting to happen, I will say, from a more community angle. There's a lot of community-centered growth and approaches coming in, and that's where it's coming. But that's part of marketing to me. And that's a crucial form. It does become a crucial form of amplification as well as internally too. You need to make sure that you're preparing people internally with something, whether it is, hey, here's how this case study can be used in a sales deck or in a one pager. But even, hey, making sure you're giving employees the tools to amplify things should they want to, because your employee base can be huge advocates for the kind of content that you're creating and huge parts of that distribution process. Absolutely. Shifting gears... 180 degrees. Last thing I need to know from you. Somebody pushed you in a pool? Yes. This is a fun story I like telling. So I was a relatively early employee at Twitter in the first 150 employees or so. I was there from about 2009 to about 2012. Really crazy time of growth. All kinds of fun things happened. And there was one time when the CEO got invited to this fundraiser. And part of the fundraiser was he was going to get pushed into a pool and people would auction for the right to push the CEO of Twitter into a pool. And he said, heck no, I'm not going to that. But you can send this like group of employees instead. And I was one of the group of employees who was like going to this like very fancy fundraiser at this hotel that had a pool. And there was an MC and it happened to be MC Hammer who was conducting the bidding. And then he would push people in the pool. So after people bid on us, MC Hammer pushed us all one by one into the pool. And we it was raising money for a great cause in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. So it was a fun story to tell. Hammer, don't hurt him. Fantastic. <laughs> Misha, thank you for being on the show. This was great. If people want to get in touch with you after this, do you have a way, LinkedIn maybe, that would get people in touch with you to finish the conversation? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn at Misha VN, Misha Vaughn, and I'm on Twitter at just Misha, M-I-S-C-H-A. Must be nice being an early Twitter employee. <laughs> it, is, it is one of the benefits, one of the benefits, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Chris, Thanks for having for, me. Thanks for being here. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to join us next time for more insights from people who love words. This podcast was brought to you by Acrolinks. Continue honing your enterprise content by checking out other episodes at acrolinks.com slash wordbirds. If you have questions or comments, feel free to get in touch with Chris and his team by sending a message to word.birds at acrolinks.com. That's all for now. See you next time.